Hey everyone, you're now part of the B2B Power Hour and I'm your host, Nicholas Dickett. I'm Morgan Smith. We help sales professionals power up their sales skills from first touch to revenue, one hour at a time. Join us for weekly live shows and interviews with industry experts breaking down what works and what doesn't in the remote sales era. Now, on to today's episode. The headlines recently have definitely been a little (laughs) topsy-turvy. And that was sort of the, I think, the inciting incident for this conversation, David, because what we hear a lot from sellers is, well, the world's, (laughs) you know, well, the world's on fire is maybe too far, but there's so much change happening and companies are laying people off. And the economy is sort of upside down in some ways. And maybe selling is harder than it used to be. So in just this moment, because of all of this circumstance. So maybe to kick it off, what do you see are the the, maybe the fundamentals that we lose sight of in moments where the world goes crazy, where we feel like we're in survival mode? Like, what are the things we just suddenly start ignoring when we shouldn't ignore. Yeah. Well, there's this concept I talk a lot about. So being like a research scientist by education, I talk a lot about this concept of inertia, right? This is like Newton's third law. The object in motion tends to stay in motion and so on. And inertia is what propels so many of the challenges that we uh, sellers experience in the market. And, you know, one of the best examples, certainly during, I'm going to use the phrase during times like these a whole bunch of times. But like in times like these, sometimes if you don't know how you're supposed to react or behave or change your emotion, you just go and you just do what you were doing before, right? And and this is actually not just in times like these. I see this a lot, especially with, for example, young sales leaders. And we can talk about leadership because there's a whole leadership angle to this conversation as well. But let's say, for example, I am a seller and I did really well in my job. I get promoted to manage the team. I don't really necessarily have a leadership playbook yet. I have an individual contributor playbook, and I'm just going to continue to run that and kind of impose that on my team until I figure out what I should be doing differently. So this idea of inertia, and then that certainly in times of adversity, as we find ourselves in, that can you know lead us astray. So this idea of inertia is something we're always trying to combat. It's exactly kind of you know what Nicholas was saying at the beginning, you know that what's sometimes referred to as the knowing doing gap which is actually a book by two Stanford professors, Bob Sutton, Jeff Pfeffer. And they said, you know, why is it? And you could apply this to so many things. Why is it that there's so many books, they were specifically applying it to management and leadership. So many books on management and leadership exist, so much knowledge, and yet people suck. Why are there so many books on, and I talk about this in in my book, why are there so many books on diet and weight loss and exercise, and yet the proportion of obese people keeps going up, right? It's not lack of knowledge. It's lack of implementation of the knowledge. And the question is like, why are we not implementing this newfound knowledge? It's sometimes we don't know the tactics, you know, as as Nick was saying at the beginning. And sometimes we don't appreciate why we should change. You know, whenever you ask someone to change, the thing they're thinking about in their head is like, why should I do this? So inertia is the enemy of so many sellers, so many leaders, of so many sales operations. And that's how we we get in trouble. We just don't know what to do. So we just keep doing what we were doing before. Hmm. And do you think like how we're prospecting actually magnifies this too? Because a lot of sellers, they lead with themselves, the I'm amazing pitch, and they're not really focusing on like the why change, why now? Because it it almost, from what I hear, that inertia is really that survival mechanism. And you're like, I know this works. So you guys need to do what I did because what I did made me, me. So if you guys double down on, you know, what, what made me successful, you guys will be successful too. And I think that's part of that inertia, right? Is that survival mechanism. Well, you're stepping right into it, man. This is this is what I refer to in my book. Chapter one is called the Cobra Kai paradox. You know what I mean when I say Cobra Kai? No. Yeah, uh-huh. I do. Morgan knows. What's Cobra yeah. Kai, Morgan? Uh, it's from Karate Kid, right? That's right. It's a mm-hmm. it's a karate kid reference. For those of you who remember. So I'm, you know, not to age myself, I'm 47 years old. So when I was nine, the movie, The Karate Kid comes out. And now The Karate Kid, like it's out, there's like a new version of it and so on. And so it's this pop culture reference to the Cobra Kai, which is kind of like the the opposite end of the Mr. Miyagi spectrum. It's this uh, karate studio where they teach, you know, no mercy. It's all about winning and the competition. And they they build these 
jerks, like these bully jerks. I don't want to swear on your show. Like these bully You're more than welcome to. Don't worry. Let her rip. Let her rip. So so they build these like asshole, if I can say like asshole kids, right? Who are actually, the the thing that I talk about in the very first chapter, like these are not bad kids. Bad salespeople, of which there are many, are not bad people, okay? They're good people. They have friends, family, people that love them. They're just like us, okay? But they chose to learn from the wrong sensei. I went to the Cobra Kai and I learned how to be an asshole. And by the way, like now in the case of the Cobra Kai, you could argue that they were poorly intentioned in their approach. However, back to what Nicholas is saying is like the way I learn sales, we don't go to sales school. Like there, and I, again, I talk about this. There's so few, you know, schools, business programs, especially in the US that teach anything having to do with sales. And yet it's so important and fundamental to what we do in every element of business. But there's no governing body. There's no license. There, like anyone could be in sales. And so what happens is we choose our sensei. And if we choose to learn from someone who's just, well, this is what I did. Here's what you should do. That's where we get into problems. So if you're not always learning and questioning, you are just going to be dragged along by inertia and then be sitting there wondering, why is the stuff that I was, you know, I was doing two years ago, why is that not working anymore? And in the sciences, that might kind of be okay-ish. I mean, science moves fast as we've seen in the last few years. However, you know, foundational principles, math, physics, like they've remained unchanged for like, you know, the foundational key stuff for a long long period of time. But sales has changed so much, partially because buying has changed so much. Mm. So if you're learning from a sensei who learned their craft, who well-intentioned, not an asshole, but well-intentioned, you know, and you're learning the tactics, you know, that worked a number of years ago and you're, it's not going to work anymore. And it's funny to give you an example. Can I give you an example? Absolutely. Of course. I'm just going to like, because I believe sales is life and we can learn lots of stuff from, you know, from life. So if you remember the beginning of the pandemic, when advertisers were, you know, they were, you know, they're still running the ads. So the pandemic hit, it was like really fast and advertisers were still running the ads that they had, because it takes time to create ad campaigns. And so they're running ads and, and copy and all that kind of stuff from before the pandemic. And then, you know, what happened was they eventually changed to like the soft piano music. We're all in this together, right? But then that only lasted like a certain period of time to the point where people are like, okay, now we're in it and the message need to change. And so what happened was a lot of these advertisers were kind of caught flat-footed where they were not agile enough with their messaging, because the way society was kind of absorbing the state of the moment was moving a lot faster than they were. And so I say the same thing with selling, you know, the algorithms, like I know a thousand percent, the stuff that I used to post to LinkedIn, you know, for example, two years ago, doesn't work the same way, you know, it works now. LinkedIn in in a way, I don't, there's not a commentary on social media is becoming more like Facebook. You know, it's more of like the emotional posts, not sharing articles, not sharing videos, pictures of our families, our personal struggles, that kind of stuff. And so if you're not seeing that and adapting and you're still running the same stuff you did two years ago, you're going to fail. And it's that inertia that pulls us along. Choose your sensei is probably one of the most beautiful, powerful example. Because it's it's like you're buying into a franchise and basically what resources are you getting? Because you're your own independent person doing the work so what do you get in return to do the best job you can well choose your sensei like people leave managers they don't leave companies how brilliant is that in the sales world my goodness that was a wicked opening chapter (laughs) (laughs) when we're thinking about inertia this is interesting because i think nick and i have seen this a lot in companies that we've been talking to and working with is that the world sort of changes, whether buyer behavior changes, maybe you have a company that said they had budget and then now they don't have budget. (laughs) And now we continue along with the same supposed path as before. How can we, like, how are, what are the ways that we can overcome this inertia? Like you, David, what do you do? Is it just like a gut check? Like, oh, okay, things have changed. I need to adapt or like how can organizations or sales teams be agile in moments like this where things are a little topsy-turvy? 
Yeah. Well, look, I think there's there's kind of two ways. Number one, just look at the data. Mm-hmm. You know, the data will tell you if your conversion rates are getting better, getting worse. You know, as you expand to different markets or different you know segments of you know uh, customer types, or working with bigger customers, smaller customers, the data will tell you whether or not you're kind of you know leading in the right direction. But the other piece is just you know the prevailing sentiment of society. I was having this conversation with a, a senior sales leader today, and they were asking me, you know, David, like, what do you see in the market in terms of like the slowdown? Like what's actually happening. And I saw this as well at the beginning of the pandemic, which is some of the slowdown is warranted. Like for example, if you sold to hospitality or airlines at the beginning of the pandemic, you should, you don't need the data to tell you like you should switch. Like, you know, the society is telling you that that ain't where the money's at uh-huh. you know, now, nowadays. However, but what also happened at the pandemic at the beginning was that there was a lot of fear, like fear motivated change. And you had, for example, a bunch of venture-funded technology companies that said, hey, you know what? We're not selling to airlines or you know, uh, hospitality. We're, we're kind of good, but shoot, like we're going to look to raise a bunch of money in the next year or so. And I don't know what the funding climate's going to be like. So I think we need to hold on to the cash we have and be a bit more conservative with it. So we're going to let some people go and we're going to you know, stop these projects, not because anything was fundamentally wrong with their business, but because it was just the fear. And I'm actually seeing that happen again now, where you have certainly some businesses are having a tough time because maybe what they sell is, if I were to refer to it as discretionary, although, you know, this idea of like nice to have, I actually, my, my belief is like everything is a nice to have, like no one needs anything, you know, like you need actually very little. And especially in the technology world where we operate, like no one really needs, like they can get by with whatever they're doing. Right. So no one really needs anything, but you know, depending on, for example, who you're selling to, if you're selling to, for example, a sales or marketing leader, it's very different in times like these than selling to like an HR leader. And I sold to HR leaders for many years of my career. It's just a different kind of experience. And certain things get cut first more than others. But a lot of it is is still fear. It's this question of like, okay, what's going to happen in times of uncertainty? People just tend to like recoil and cocoon and they kind of live to fight another day. And, and then you know, we were kind of talking about this a little bit, I think, earlier, earlier, in a way, sometimes this can work to your advantage, because I remember one of my, so my startup, one of my startups in 2008, we started this company, and we, we eventually ended up getting acquired by Salesforce in 2012. And I don't need to tell you what happened. 2008 was not a good time, you know, for no. the world, <laughs> but in a way, it was kind of good for us because we could almost work to build our product in secrecy without a lot of fanfare, without a lot of pressure, and kind of emerge with the product once the economy had recovered. So if you look at the fundamentals, yes, like there are, are certain problems with the economy and things happening now, but like unemployment is like record low. So it's not like, you know, people don't have jobs. They're not, it's not like they're not working places. The markets are kind of coming back. The supply chains are coming back. So other than inflation, which is a lot of things that are driving it, there's a, just a lot of, I think what's driving a lot of what you're seeing today, just a lot of fear. You know, a lot of fear and uncertainty doesn't mean that you shouldn't adjust your sales motion, but those two things you're reconciling with data with the prevailing sentiment, and that will give you kind of your signal to move forward in a different way. Hmm. It's interesting reflecting on that. And like, it's all pain and gain when you're going and picking, like you want to be a number, you know, priority number one or two, or you may not exist in this quarter, but we're thinking of like the pain of change versus the status quo, the perceived pain is higher to change because they want to keep that capital for just in case it's they're living in that fear. So that's a huge reframe that you're going to have to do even to open up that conversation, which we talk about setting the tone with our prospecting. Whew, that's a tough place to be <laughs> fighting well, against the status quo. Yeah. I'll tell you what you said is really important, like setting that, that reframe and showing them that the way forward with you is actually better than what they're doing today. And this was a, a session I did on my uh, in my Facebook group. So I do these live sessions almost every week. And I, I had this uh, session that I did where I said, you know, salespeople need to focus on people, salespeople conflate the two concepts of importance and priority all the time. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is like, let's say, for example, I were to say, you know, gentlemen, is, um, is your, you know, what are the most important things for you in life, right? You might, you might say like my health, family, those, if I didn't have those things, then I have nothing, right? And we would all probably agree that that's the case. But then if I followed you around every day 
And I, I wrote down everything you ate and how often you exercised and how much time you spent with your family. Would it be consistent with what you said was important? So importance speaks to the relative magnitude of the problem that the customer is looking to solve. You agree that health and family are the most important in terms of problems, if I can say, to solve. It doesn't mean that's where you're spending the most time. And so it's funny, you know, I speak to sellers all the time who put together these amazing business cases for customers. And, and you know, they, all these assumptions, they validate them, and the customers still don't move forward, right? Why is that? It wasn't that what you said wasn't important. It's just that the customer didn't recognize that what you had to say was the first, second, or third most you know, relevant thing that they needed to focus on on that moment. Now, sometimes we can, as sellers, kind of escalate the priority of our initiative by trying to staple it to something they're already working on, right? Mm -hmm. And so we actually did that when we got acquired by Salesforce. Salesforce sold a product that was like this, right? And we sold a product that was like that. So we were like this little angle biter. We're like, oh, please attach us to this deal. Please attach <laughs> us to that deal, you know? And the sales reps are like, well, you know, like you're so little, I don't know why, you know, I have to, I don't want to sell them a whole new thing and explain to them why they need this little thing. So what do we do? We align our messaging to say, no, no, no. The reason why you're investing in this little thing is the same reason why you invested in this big thing, right? And so the attach rate became a lot higher. And so the same thing happens in your business. And, and you know, I saw this at lots of companies, never mind in an economic downturn. A lot of times the things that we're selling to our customers are not necessarily the most important or highest priority thing. They have other priorities. However, if we can somehow align the thing that we're selling with one of those higher priorities and kind of staple it to the high priority, right? Then it makes the case much more you know, impactful internally. Now, the one other thing I'll just kind of add to this is that sometimes, let's say, for example, you're in a, let's say we're in a tough economic time now, and your solution can actually save the customer a bunch of money and time, or they should actually do it. But they're operating on inertia and they're thinking that, like they basically, whatever you say, they discount by 90%. And so you can never kind of raise above the fold. One of the things that you can do, and this is, you know, this I, this is going to sound, this is a thing I talk about in my book and my content's going to sound weird, but hear me out, is I say sometimes when you, how's that for like a preemptive, you know, now I got to like, it's got to live up. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, petting zoos, that's what you need. No, not petting zoos. I say sometimes when you want to sell someone a Band-Aid, you have to cut them first. Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone go out there and intentionally harm anyone. What I am saying is that customers walk around with problems that they do not realize the magnitude of, even in their own organizations. And so I say sometimes when you're trying to relate what it is you do to a problem they can solve, they're immediately going to discount you and say, like, oh, like, for example, I'm selling IT security software. And I go to Morgan and I say, hey, Morgan, we can help you and improve your security and do A, B, and C. And Morgan says, no, no, I'm, I'm good. Like we have this software in place and it's working. And I'm thinking to myself, Morgan doesn't even realize how exposed his organization is. He doesn't know what the latest viruses or the latest you know, the cyber threats are. And so in order for him to become receptive to my message, I need to cut him. Like I need to, I need to scare him a little bit, right? In, 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 a, in the best possible Mr. Mayagi way. And and show him that no, no no like the world in the future is a lot different than the way you see it or the way the world is now is a lot different than the way you see it and here's why this should be a higher priority it's like if you said I'm healthy enough like I don't need to exercise health is important but at a certain point I'm healthy I'm not trying to run a triathlon here and I might say well look you know Morgan you know when I typically see people in your position eighty percent within the next 10 years, end up having a heart attack, right? And now all of a sudden you're like, oh, shoot, I thought everything was good, but now I realize maybe this should be a higher priority. And you see this all the time when people have scares or issues, all of a sudden, you know, they completely reshift their focus in life because all of a sudden something became a higher priority. So as sellers, we can do that as well. Well, it makes sense. Problem with pain. If the pain isn't evident, you're not going to fix it. And the pain fades as you make it status quo. You're like, what do you mean? Everybody struggles with putting data into the CRM. No, you know, I don't want to go and pick up the phone because nobody picks up the phone anymore. So I, you know, we just go and do this instead. You start justifying it 
until it's too hard or too big to ignore. Like I heard a, somebody talking about going to the doctor and they had been chasing them for five or 10 years to clean up their diet because they had really high blood pressure and something else and diabetes. And it just wasn't a thing. And the doctor said, we're at a point where I'm worried I'll never see you again unless you make a change. And I'm really surprised you haven't had a heart attack or something to now. So it's like a, a, what does challenger call it? It's a frame breaking insight, something like that, that reframes the way people think. hundred percent. And look, you know, I also say like in times like these, you have to pick and choose who you use those tactics with. Right. So for example, let's say we're at the beginning of the pandemic and airlines and hosp- restaurants, hospitality are going down. Right. The question is, do I want to even armed with the best cutting tactics? Do I want to go and try to service those customers now? Like in all fairness, like they're not buying anything. And on a scale of one to 10, I would have to come over the top with some crazy transformative thing for them to kind of say yes, right? Mm -hmm. Versus, you know, in a regular time or in times like these, let's say you have an organization that's kind of clamping down on spending just because of fear and anxiety about raising money, whatever, and, and you could actually help them. Maybe that's a better use of your time and energy. I kind of always think of customers as, as existing on like a spectrum. I know I've done, <laughs> I've done two different spec, like this, you know, like on a scale of one to 10, if a customer needs to be an eight before they buy something from you, the question is, where are they now? If there are two or a three, then I need to do a lot of work to sell them up to an eight before they buy something. And like, that's a lot of work. I don't want to do that work. Like I'll put in all the work to get them up to a six and they still won't buy anything. But if I can find like the fives and sixes and put in the work to sell them up to an eight, that's a good use of my time. So my advice to all of you trying to figure out, okay, who should I pursue? How should I change up my motion? Try to figure out for your space in your kind of ideal customer profile, who are the fives and sixes? Going for the twos and threes now, not only will end up require you to spend a whole bunch of time and effort that you don't have and result in nothing. But in a way, it can sound a little tone deaf to your customers. Mm. And one of the things that I talk about, I have this article talking about tips for connecting with customers, especially during times of diversity. And one of the things that I talk about is this biochemical reaction that people have during times of adversity. And I've talked about this a lot, this idea that if you think back to the most memorable, some of the most memorable days, let's say of your professional career, your personal life. The things that you tend to remember most are the obviously like the bigger events, but oftentimes the, the times where things went wrong for you. Yep. Like I remember, you know, I, I talk about this in my book. I was diagnosed with cancer a number of years ago. I remember exactly what I was wearing, the car I was driving, what the weather was like that day. And the reason is because when you find yourself in a tough situation, it's evolution's way of helping you figure out in the future, should you find yourself in that situation again, how to get out of it. So like you're, you're trapped in like the bear pit, all of a sudden the biochemical markers in your brain hit record. And so it's playing back and it can play back years from now, the sequence of events that you took to get out of that bad situation. And that's, that's why it does that to help you get out of bad situations in the future. But what also happens, kind of like the corollary of this, is that if you treat your customers poorly and you sound tone deaf when they're actually going through a a period of hardship and you're trying to sell to them and put the hard pressure on them, they will have long memories of that as well. And when the smoke finally does clear, which it will, they will have negative memories of you and your company. The experience that your customer has with your company is the product. Mm -hmm. The experience is the product. And so if they have a bad experience with you, of course, that will hurt your sales now and in the future. If they have a bad experience with you while they are down in the dumps in a tough time, they will never do business with you again because they'll remember. So it's really important to, to be mindful of how we treat people, the twos and threes in times like these. Unintentional rhyme, sorry. Never cut them while they're down. Yeah. yeah. Every time you say that, it just gives me a chuckle, but it makes sense. Even makes sense with like bad outreach when you're, I can't remember the Cobra Kai. And so like you kick somebody and then they're down and you keep going. I think that's why sales, some salespeople get a bad rep because that sticks. 
Yeah. Like the relentless follow-up when you really haven't added value, you've just been annoying the whole time. Yeah. Nick calls it the multi-generational sequence where they, they won't just go after you, but they'll go after your kids as well. They're just going to keep on <laughs> pursuing you relentlessly across generations. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, which by the way, you know, sometimes what sellers do, and I, and I don't mean to single up, but especially young sellers. And I say young sellers because young sellers don't talk to people on the phone as much, you know, like in their personal lives. Like it's, and it's kind of funny, all of the phone numbers that I know in my head were memorized like prior to, you know, 2005, like my parents' phone number, I can remember, you know, my phone number, I can, you know, like, but my, my kids' phone numbers, if you tortured me to death, I would, I could not tell you what their phone numbers are. Because the part of my brain that is responsible for memorizing phone numbers is a part that I don't need anymore. There's things that do that. And so it's kind of the same thing when, let's say I'm a, a seller, a young person, and I don't talk on the phone in my personal life because who talks on the phone? It's like Facebook is for old people, right? Like, you know, I'm on Snapchats and you know, all the Insta, whatever's I'm on the TikToks and all that kind of stuff. And so what happens is we say to ourselves, well, I'm trying to prospect into Nick here, but you know what? My boss is telling me to make all these calls and follow up and follow up. But you know what I hate? I hate it when people call me. You know, this is actually when I was at a conference in 2016 in New York City that Salesforce was organizing and Gary Vaynerchuk is speaking. He gets up on stage. I'll never forget this. And he says, who here? It was just, this is what exactly what he said. Who here hates it when another human being calls them on the phone? That was it. There was no qualification. Is it your mother? Is it your friend? Like who hates it? And 40% of the audience, sales and marketing leaders put their hands up, a thousand people. And he says, you know why they do that? Why you say that is because the most precious thing in, in this economy and how busy we are, the most precious thing you have is your time. Mm. And when someone calls you on the phone, it's like they're stealing your time. It's like, you will talk to me now. I've chosen this moment in time for you to talk to me. And that's why they hate it. So you compound that with young people or people who don't talk on the phone and you tell them make 50 calls a day. And they have this internal conflict where they say, well, shoot, I don't like to be bothered. So you know what? I'm not going to bother Nick. I'm not going to bother Morgan. And even though my boss in the sequence is telling me to follow up 13 times, I'm not going to do that because I don't like it when people do that to me. Right? I also wonder, David, if part of it, Gary Vee is just, that's a hook, line, and sinker. But one thing I wonder, is that part of the reason is that the seller doesn't know why they're calling in the first place? Somebody just hands them a list. Why are they on the list? Why am I calling them now? I think that's part of the problem even, and it's more important now than ever, is having context to call. Because you can burn a bridge, like you were saying, very quickly by you know, calling someone when it's not the right time or even just opening up with the wrong message because you should be just calling all sales managers, but you're calling sales managers in different industries and it's just something different that resonates with them. Different, you know, they feel the pain differently. It shows up differently in their life. And so they've, to go and put it into their day-to-day, -day, it just doesn't resonate because that's not how they talk. Well, you know, this, this gets, I'm so glad you brought this up because this gets into a whole other, which we won't get into the whole thing, but a whole other area, which is, you know, a, a concept that I refer to uh, in my book and my content, I call it experience asymmetry. So I actually wrote an article in Harvard Business a few years ago. It was called How Younger Salespeople Can Sell to Older Customers. And I talked about this concept of experience asymmetry. And what, what experience asymmetry is, is that the fear and trepidation that's manifested by a seller when they're trying to call on a more senior experienced buyer whose job they've never done. And the simple example, as I say, like I, like my kids, okay? So I have, I have three daughters, two are teenagers, one's 10. When they come to me and they're about to hit me up for something that they think I'm gonna say no to, right? I can tell immediately just by the way they approach me, right? It's like the, Dad, I'm like, the answer is no. I immediately feel defensive. And what was interesting, do you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> oh. kids can't hide it. But what I found was the same thing at Salesforce. And, and shout out, you know, when I was at Salesforce, I used to run small business sales for the Eastern US. 
So I would have teams in, in a bunch of different cities and my New York City sales reps always hustled the most. But sometimes I would have these reps that would have lots of activity, no pipeline. So I would start listening to their calls because I'm like, I have no other recourse to figure out what's going on with you. So I'm listening to Morgan's calls and I'm just, I'm closing my eyes and I don't even care about the words. I'm just like listening for whatever. And what I would do is I would go back to Morgan and I would say, Morgan, it sounds to me like you're bothering this customer. Like that's what it sounds like. It sounds like you're reading a script that you don't believe in and you've never done this person's job and you're thinking in the back of your head, who the hell am I? Why would this VP of whatever pay attention to me? I'm just a kid, right? And it's manifesting in your tone of voice. Right? It's like when you get a call from a telemarketer. How long does it take you to tell that it's a telemarketer reading from a script? Three Immediately. Seconds. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Instantaneously, just by the way they approach you. And so I say the same thing. Like if you're a seller of any, of any, and I say, I used to think that experience asymmetry was young selling to old euphemistically. But what I realized is also new selling to experience, you know? So you could be, you could have 20 years of sales experience calling on a buyer whose job you've never done, or you're new to your company. They armed you with the pitch, you know, say this. And oftentimes the things that they ask you to say are not words that human beings say to each other. And so what <laughs> happens is, yeah, God bless product marketing, you know, I'm doing, you know uh-huh, I'm, doing, yeah. <laughs> I'm doing a full Ricky Bobby, uh, you know, uh, uh, with all due respect to product marketing, the things that they put out but the things that appear on your website, most cases are not things that human beings say to each other. And so when you rattle off this non-human sounding pitch to someone whose job you've never done, you don't know what they do, they can tell. And so that then provides this feedback mechanism of like, oh, I don't like this. I should not make more of these calls. These calls are painful, right? But imagine you were calling someone to tell them that they just won $10 million in the lottery for real you would sound way different, right? I often say to you know my clients and people, I'm like, can you tell that I love what I do? You know, can you tell? I'm not fishing for compliments here, right? Yes, yes, I can tell. <laughs> and so I say, great. So like, how, I want you to understand, like, how can you tell? What am I doing, right? And people might say, well, you know, you're really enthusiastic and you seem to know a lot about this. No one's fact-checking anything I'm saying here, by the way, right? But like, it's a feeling you're getting from me. So I say like, when you call your customers and prospects during adverse times, during good times, and you're telling them how you can help, do they believe you, right? Because they can feel your passion, your conviction. The problem is that a lot of us, we take the, the narrative from marketing, which is sometimes problematic. Number two, and this is like a bigger thing, uh, and, and this is actually kind of how we bridge this gap. The things that most of us do are normal things that no one cares about. Most, and I say that with all due respect, okay? I train salespeople, right? I'm not curing cancer. I'm not feeding starving children in third world countries or preventing war somewhere. I train salespeople, you know, you put out great content. This company makes payroll software. None of us are splitting the atom here. Okay. So the question is, how do we take, and now, and by the way, some of us are doing fantastic things that are splitting the atom and, and curing people. And, and it's fantastic. Like, and that's where people talk about being aligned with the mission, but how do we take a rank and file seller in times like these and arm them with a narrative that they can go out to to a prospect or customer and share with passion and conviction in our ability to help them. It seems so simple. It's obviously not so simple, but that enthusiasm absolutely as Dean saying here in the comments is hundred percent contagious. The question is how can we manifest it? So important. Could you imagine pitching a friend with the average pitch, like going, like oh, just God. taking them for coffee? Somebody, I don't remember where I heard this, but somebody said the best way to practice your pitch is to take your best friend out for a drink or coffee and try to go and pitch them in casual conversation. And I was like, why would you do that? And they're like, if you feel like what you do is not good enough to tell a friend, A, you need to change your job or reframe how you look at your job. And B, all sales is, is a strategic conversations. You know, you have to have the right person, the right time, the right message and everything will fall together. 
But if you can't captivate a friend that trusts you to listen, <laughs> yeah, good luck problem. on the strangers. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, I think about the uh, the sellers that we work with too. This, I think, David, is one of the stumbling blocks that people have when it comes to like DMs on LinkedIn, especially. Like, how can I keep up a casual conversation that isn't just product marketing language with some templated pitch, but like actually having something that's tuned in to the emotional response of somebody else. And that I feel is harder too, somewhat in the remote sales era where you're doing stuff entirely asynchronously and, and most of the time, not by any means 100% of the buying journey, but over text, over just emails and DMs. And do you think that changes like our ability to read people or understand like how they're responding and how might we manage that too? That would be an interesting angle. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, again, you're feeding into another really important. You guys are. I don't, we, this is not rehearsed, but you're setting this up so nicely. <laughs> we uh, there's this concept I talk a lot about in my book and my content called abstraction, which is just this kind of mental barrier that we put between things. It's the reason why you don't give to starving children in third world countries. It's not that you're a bad person. It's just that that's happening there, and I'm here, right? Like abstraction, and this happens a lot in sales especially as you're sending out texts and messages and emails and your customers are just, they're picturing you in their head as the enemy, right? You're not even like a human to them. Like, you know, you, you know, don't, it's, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you're like just some, you're the enemy, right? And so one of the, the most important things that we can do as sellers is humanize ourselves. And one of the studies that was done in this area to kind of prove it out it had to do with a radiologist, which I talk about in my book, which was imagine this. So you're a radiologist. So radiologist is a doctor that just looks at scans all day of like x-rays and MRIs and CAT scans and all that kind of stuff. They don't really spend a lot of time with patients. They just look at their record. And they found now in radiology, there's a thing known as an incidental finding, which is a thing that appeared on your, let's say you broke your arm and you went for an x-ray. Now I'm the radiologist. I'm looking at the x-ray. An incidental finding is something that I found on the x-ray that I wasn't looking for. You know, I wasn't instructed to look for. So I find that you have some arthritis in your elbow, but I wasn't, I was here to look at your broken arm, right? Now, incidental findings are important because sometimes you get an x-ray or whatever. In my situation, you know, they, they do like an ultrasound, whatever, and they find, oh, cancer. Well, that's not good, right? So that's an incidental finding. What they found was they took these radiologists, they gave them 300 different radiology scans. The radiologist adjudicated on them. And then three months later, they snuck them back into their queue. But this time they attached photographs of the patients with the scan. What happened? The rate of incidental findings increases 80%. And why? It's the same reason why, you know, people who work in dangerous jobs, like I drive a forklift in a factory, or I'm a long, a long a haul trucker driver, and I have pictures of my family on the dashboard. I do that to remind me that it's important to be safe, right? To destroy that layer of abstraction. So I say, in sales, you are the enemy. No one wants to talk to you, as great and wonderful as you are. And so we need to be able to erode that layer of abstraction. And one of the ways we do that is with things like video chat, because now we see each other, it's very hard for me to ignore you and think you're a jerk when we're having this nice conversation, you have a lovely smile. But also, when you talk about prospecting on LinkedIn, one of the things I often do, and I just do this as a matter of course, I don't do a ton of LinkedIn prospecting per se, but sometimes if I need to share some information with someone on LinkedIn, I will send them the text-based note, and then I will also use the LinkedIn voicemail feature to leave them a voice message providing a little bit more context to the note. So they hear, at least they hear me, they hear I'm a normal person, they can sound, I sound authentic when I speak and it roads a little bit of that abstraction barrier, super important. It's interesting, we talk about like what makes us human and what can be automated right now. And like the voice notes and the videos and all this stuff is hard to fake, which I think, passes that genuine like is this real test the sniff test right maybe not the turing test but like is it real because i think that's what people are craving right now being all stuck in their little hidey holes is they want somebody that has done the work they want someone to show up whether you know we're talking about priority or importance 
everybody thinks they're at least a little important, right? And so it's like when somebody goes and hits you with a bad pitch and you're like, man, David, didn't you go and like, at least like look at my LinkedIn profile first? And then when somebody does, it's just so mind-blowing. Like, David, how did you know that? And I feel like leaning in on our humanity with our empathy, with our storytelling, with our you know, ability to go and connect the dots, the un, you know, those unforeseen connections is what people crave right now. But is we, I think we're getting too far ahead of ourselves because first comes the conversation that why change, why now, not the why you. And I think when so many sellers are starting on step three and wondering what's going wrong, and I think it just gets so magnified in times like these where people just don't have the patience or the tolerance for it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and in times of adversity, people's you know kind of bullshit tolerance goes way down, right? Like, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough time. I'm isolating with my family and during the pandemic and like everything's changing all around me. You know, my tolerance for, for bad behavior is lower, 100%. Yeah, and I actually like to think that there's a process of natural, so, see, I said process, there you go. A process of natural selection going on where these poor tactics will become less and less tolerated over time. And just by natural selection, the kind of the crop of modern sellers that we have are the ones that are more kind, more empathetic. And by the way, I, I to say being empathetic does not give you an excuse to be lazy, mm. right? Just because you don't like getting phone calls and you don't like being bothered doesn't mean that I have something important to help. Like for example, you know, when my wife asks me to do something, do you think I do it the first time she asks me, right? Like sometimes it takes a number of times. I can't tell you how many clients I've kept after and kept after with polite persistence who at the end of the day thanked me for not giving up on them. So mm. being empathetic and really dial into your customers and who you can help does not give you permission to be lazy. It doesn't mean that you can stop after three calls, right? You keep going. If you believe deep down inside that you can help that person, and if you believe it, there's a much better chance that they will believe it too, just by your your tone of voice, your persistence, and they'll thank you at the end of the day, 100%. Asking yourself before you make that call is like, what's worth the interruption? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're, you've mentally, your mind is ready, so you'll mirror that in your in your mm-hmm. zone. I was thinking about something you had brought up a little bit, and this kind of teases into a leadership conversation, which is maybe how we round this out, which is the organizations in survival mode. It's something Nick and I talk a fair bit about. Mm-hmm. We haven't recently really, but something that we've observed a lot is that as the the car sort of downshifts into first gear, and it's really just the organization is just trying to hit the basics. They are just in first gear. We are only looking for quota attainment, pipeline attainment. We're just trying to keep the ship together and headed in the right direction. How, I assume maybe there are some pros to that, but how do you imagine that changes the sales leadership conversation? Like, how can sales leaders continue to support their sellers in meaningful human ways, still continuing to hit hit their objectives, but not let it turn? shall we say toxic maybe is the right word to use in this environment when the going gets tough and the organization shifts down into first gear and just wants to hit like baseline metrics. Like we just got to close some deals. We're going to ramp, you know, we're to eat. I'm sure we've all heard it before. It's like, wow, we really got to hit this hard. So I didn't know if you had any thoughts on how sales leaders can help. I don't know if protect is the right word, but at the very least avoid toxic cultures during strange times in companies. Yeah, 100%. And it's actually timely because uh, today I just published a brand new article. It's called Five Strategies for Leading Sales Teams Through Uncertain Times. And uh, if you go to my blog, which is just cerebralselling.com slash blog, it'll be the first one at the top of the list. And one of the things that I say, you know, a lot of times people get frazzled because this is the first time they've experienced any adversity in their careers. Like when you think about it, there was 2008 and now this. Now there's, uh, there's other stuff in between and there could be momentary periods of adversity for certain industries, I get that. But for a lot of people, especially, and again, I work primarily with high growth technology companies, they're used to seeing up into the right stuff all the time. 
you know, like we're joining the rocket ship. This is what. And so they join with that expectation. They don't understand that adversity is actually normal and nothing to be afraid of, you know, like, and, and sometimes you just need a certain amount of life experience as well to appreciate that weird shit happens all the time. Right. So not to get frazzled, not lose your cool, not think, oh, I'm going to go jump ship and go somewhere else where like the grass is greener. Cause we all know that that usually does not turn out the way you think. So I say like, number one, just to assure people that a, this is normal. B, you know, I talk about this concept of creating certainty where you can. And so, you know, I was talking about this, my friend Todd Capone is a great dude. And we did a a whole session on this together. We were talking about this idea that, you know, brains are uh, prediction machines. The purpose of your brain is to look out for threats. And so it's always saying, okay, if this sequence plays out, if I go down the dark alley, that could not be bad. If I eat this poison thing, that could not be bad. Okay, don't do that. So it's always trying to predict. And when it can't see its way to the finish line, then then fear sets in. It's like when you get some kind of weird diagnosis and they're like, oh, you know, Nick, we gotta, we gotta run some more tests on your whatever, more some more MRIs, more x-rays, more blood work to see what this thing is. And you're like, Doc, what is this? And like, we don't know. That's the worst, right? When you're in this period of uncertainty and waiting for results, because your mind is always thinking, well, what, what could the worst be? What will the, you know, what will ha- happen here? What will happen there? And because it's trying to predict, it's trying to prepare you for kind of bad things to happen. And so we don't know everything as leaders. We don't know what's going to happen, but we can't, we do know certain things. Uh, we know how much money we have left in the bank. We know kind of the, the stories that we've heard from our customers about the success we've had. And there's a lot of uncertainties that we don't know because the economy is unfolding, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to meet every Friday morning, 9 a.m. And in that meeting, we're going to share the latest about what we know, what we don't know. It's like you saw during the pandemic when you had politicians, Anthony Fauci, doing daily press conferences because there was a lot of unknowns and a lot of fear. And so just sharing on a day-to-day basis, what is it that we know and create certainty where we can will help. And there's five tips in this article, but the last thing I'll just share with you is kind of what we talked about earlier, which is really just realigning your sales motion. So align your sales motion to those customers that you can help the most, right? And even within that, change your messaging, right? So let's say I was selling, the example I give is like PPE to a hospital. I had to do that before the pandemic and I have to do it in the pandemic. But all of a sudden, the thing that my customer cares about as it relates to PPE, whereas before it would be cost, quality needs to be okay, delivery, eh, I can get here this week, next week, doesn't make a difference. Now it's like, there's no more toilet paper. I don't care how much it costs. I need it here yesterday. So the, the, I'm still selling to the same customer, but the thing that they value all of a sudden changes. The feelings that they're buying when they buy us have changed. So I say, as a leader, one of the things that we can do is lead the charge with our teams of kind of realigning our emotional connection to our customers, really dialing in like, what is it that they value today and aligning our sales motion thusly. So those are just a few tips for leaders. Mm. Juicy. <laughs> That's so good. It was great. <laughs> One thing that uh, keeps on like coming back up, how do you, we've talked to, we sort of circled around this, and obviously your book is titled along the same dimension here, Selling the Way You Buy. How are you creating those feedback loops or, or understanding what your buyers actually want. And I mean, not necessarily just in like times like these where there are macro shifts and some of it is visible if you pay attention, but even in like the broader shift, let's say from 2015 probably, where now buyers are doing more research on their own. They aren't only looking to sellers for information. They're there's more people on the buying committee. People are more risk averse or organizations at least are more risk averse than they used to be. How do you go about finding that insight and gathering that information together? Like what, is it a formal process or are you just always just listening in and connecting the dots as you talk with more stakeholders in a sale? Yeah, well, it's interesting. There's kind of two, uh, or two parts to this. The first part is asking them, you know, what, what do you care about? Uh, in your discovery motion, that's easy enough. But in a way, like everyone's going to ask them that. What keeps you up at night? Like everyone's going to ask that question. The second part is to actually be really 
mindful of the trends and patterns that you see by virtue of the fact that you are working. Like, think about this. You're selling to a VP of sales. That VP of sales works in, in oftentimes in isolation, in their own universe, maybe with their colleagues and so on. If you're selling to VPs of sales, you spend all day, every day, just talking to people like them. And there are problems that they're experiencing that you can bring them that aren't even necessarily top of mind. So that's when we talk about cutting. Okay, maybe we'll end to how we began. We talk about cutting. Sometimes I refer to this as the unknown unspoken. This, for example, the problem of experience asymmetry that I talked about, about how younger salespeople struggle to connect with the fear and trepidation. Whenever I talk to one of my clients about it that has you know younger salespeople or new salespeople or fast growth, and I say, do you have this? Do you ever listen to their calls? Do you ever hear the fear and trepidation? They're like, yes, yes, that thing that you said, we have that, right? But I will tell you, in all my years of doing this, no customer has ever brought that problem to me. If I asked them what their problems are, they wouldn't tell me, and not because they're trying to hold out on me, just because they don't know. It's not top of mind. It's my job as the seller to triangulate the signals of what I'm seeing and hearing with clients like them and distill it down in a way that, and I call this synthesis, but like you're synthesizing it down in a way that they look at and say, it was presented so simply and elegantly and truthfully and honestly with high conviction. They're like, yes, it's a problem that you're bringing me. And the beauty is when you're a seller and you bring the customer problems, you become the de facto person to solve those problems because you put the, you crystallized, you put the form to it. Right. And, and number two, it differentiates you as the seller. So the easy thing is to ask. The harder thing is to kind of spot those trends and patterns and bring those problems to your customer. Wow. That is a great way to go and wrap up the show. <laughs> I know. No kidding. David, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. It's been awesome. I know we've covered a lot of ground. Thank you for coming on this edition of the B2B Power Hour. I know people can find you out here on LinkedIn. You're active. And also you dropped um, the link earlier, CerebralSelling.com. There's lots of great resources there. And uh, 10 out of 10, I can only recommend uh, his book as well. <laughs> Having been an avid reader, it's lovely. So check out Sell the Way You Buy, right? Is that the full title, David? Okay. Just yeah. Sure. There's a subtitle that no, no one cares about. But yes, oh, the okay. okay. Is, <laughs> no. It's called Sell the Way You Buy. It's called Sell the Way by a modern approach to sales that actually works in brackets, even on you. But Got it. I never okay. really say that rest of that part. Anyways, <laughs> that. That's why I ask. Well, thank you again so much for joining. And thanks to everybody who joined us today. It was great to see everyone. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having you guys. Did you love today's episode? Subscribe now to have our three weekly episodes waiting for you. And if you really like our content, please leave a five-star review. But if you're not ready to give us a review, check out another episode and follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to win you over. See you next time. See you next time.